became a human and to defeat the evil that had crept in and contaminated his own creation, specifically humanity. And I remember thinking, gosh, I wonder if it would be like me choosing to become a budgie. Uh, myself, choosing to be born into the world again as a chick, uh, being reared by some of the birds that I had myself raised, um, and living there, and then dying at, I was going to say at their hands, but at their beaks, <laughs> um, so that my own, um, I could weed out the evil line that had, that had and I know it's such a weird analogy, um, but sometimes I imagine weird things. And then the metaphor begins to fall apart because, of course, we're not made in the image of, um, or budgies are not made in the image of us, and we don't love budgies as much as God loves us. But stay with me for a minute because it is such a, it is a metaphor, um, which is crazy and absurd. Uh, setting aside our humanist, become a bird, um, because we're so much higher up in the food chain than budgies. We're so much more important than budgies. But I have to say, it's actually more absurd that the God of Universe would become a human. It's actually more absurd that the, the creator of the entire universe, um, who has always existed, is faultless, is all-powerful, would choose to become a human and live among us and allow himself to die at the hands of us, his own creation. It's actually completely absurd, especially when most of us don't recognise him. If you think about the population of people who have ever lived and those who knew God, who God was and have recognised him as who he is. It's just absolutely absurd, even more absurd than me becoming a budgie. Um, why is it absurd? Because gods don't become humans. We don't become budgies. Gods don't love, gods don't do that in the ancient world. In the ancient world, gods did not love people. They used them and they abused them. Gods punished them and they certainly did not love them or care a fig about them. We don't turn into budgies and gods don't turn into humans. It's just... That's just the way the world is. But yet Jesus did. So we ask, well then, why did he do it? Why did he do something so absurd? And the only reason is because of his outrageous love for us. His outrageous desire to be back in full relationship uh, with him, even after we continuously stuff up and reject him. His outrageously absurd commitment to us um, and his love for us. And that is what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? We celebrate his absurd love, uh, that, that this love that would cause the king of the universe to be born in a filthy stable where only animals are fit to live. And we celebrate the total absurdity that the king of the universe would lay aside his divine privilege to live as a man among us, um, Emmanuel, God in flesh with us. And I think sometimes... We can struggle to comprehend Jesus being fully human, but at the same time fully divine. Has anyone else ever kind of tried to wrap their brains around that and just got a bit stuck? It's, it's kind of crazy, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm not going to make that more comprehensible today. It's one of the great mysteries of God. And um, maybe in the new heaven, when we get our new bodies and our new brains, we'll be able to understand that a bit more. But Jesus, although fully divine, still had to actually lay aside some of the privileges of his divinity in order to live as a human among us. The word used to describe this is kenosis. Has anyone heard of kenosis before? So kenosis means to empty oneself, self-emptying. Um, Jesus emptied himself to become a human. And when we, Graham and I were having a conversation about kenosis at home um, in preparation for this, and Graham found this great image. Um, I think it's really powerful. Here's a man emptying himself, um, 
in the sculpture. How much was that sculpture worth? $8,000. Yeah, I didn't uh, buy it. Anyway, uh, so we can, in, in this passage from Philippians, the reason I chose this uh, passage is because this talks about the self-emptying. Who, um, Christ Jesus, who in the form of God, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being made in human likeness. In the Greek text where the word, um, where in the English it says emptied, in the Greek te- text it's kenosis. And scholars assure us this doesn't mean that God became any less God, or Jesus didn't become any less God. He is still just as divine. Um, but through his free will, he emptied himself of the power, de- and he de- deprived himself of the exercise of the powers of lordship. So through, cha- through choosing to become a human, he restricted himself in his expression of power. It's still a bit hard to get our head around it, um, but it is absurd. It's absurd that this king of the universe would limit his power so that he could come and be a man among us. How crazy is his love for him to do this? So crazy. And in this kenosis, he humbled himself in the truest sense. Humility uh, is a word that we use uh, often, but I wonder, do we fully know what it means? Uh, I actually started thinking about this again after Raywin's sermon in our John series, uh, James series, when um, she referenced James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. And I was sitting out there with um, one of the kids in crash, listening, and I was like, oh, there's that verse, humble yourselves before the Lord. What does it really mean? Uh, remember that the series on James pointed us into the way we can live as Christ, um, and many of the underlying themes we saw that wove themselves throughout the whole book were about um, requiring tremendous godly wisdom, because we can't live the way James calls us to on our own. But in order to get that wisdom, we have to be in a posture of humility. Um, only in this posture of humility can we recognise that uh, we need God to give us his wisdom to get through this life. And only through this um, wisdom can we live life to all the fullness that he's, he's desired for us. It's not just getting through life, it's living life full and, uh, and joyfully. So then when we talk about this humility, if we're asked to humble ourselves before the Lord, what does it actually mean? Well, there's two types of humility. There's false humility, uh, which is the kind of self-mocking in order to win the praise or approval of others. Have you ever um, had someone cook a nice meal or they've made something really creative and amazing uh, and you might say, oh, that looks so amazing, you're, you're so good at that. Um, that's, a, that's a great art piece, or that's a great table, or that's a great meal, thank you. And they're like, oh, no, I'm not really very good at that. Oh, no, I'm not very good cook. Oh, no, I'm not. But actually, um, they are, and they know it, or they might not know it. But that, that's not really the type of humility that James is talking about. And usually, sometimes, um, they're actually looking for a compliment. So you'll then reply, oh, no, but you are. And so they'll get actually a compliment out of it. Anyway... Um, that's not the sort of humility that uh, James is talking about. True humility is demonstrated by Christ, as seen from this passage of Philippians. True humility is kenosis. True humility is emptying oneself before the Lord. Jesus emptied himself. He humbled himself by allowing God's will to be enacted in his life rather than his own. And there's more than one example of this in Scripture. The most notable one would be at the cross, Uh, When we saw it in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus expresses his will. Um, He's wrestling with the fact that 
God has called him to do something, but he doesn't want to do it. He actually wants to avoid the cross. It's painful, utterly painful. Um, But then he utters these words, not my will, but your will be done, Lord. So that's kenosis. He emptied himself of his desires, and he allowed his father's desires to be expressed in life and death. Um, His whole arrival in that stinky, muddy stable was an act of humility too. This arrival that we celebrate at Christmas is an act of kenosis. He laid aside the privileges of being Jesus, the Lord of Lords. He didn't become any less God, but he emptied himself of his power, depriving himself of the powers of lordship. In the incarnation of Christ, God with us, Emmanuel is the truest expression of humility. Are you with me? Cool. Um, But it's also actually deeply missional. So, Sarah, you might explain, well, how can I live like this? How can I be like God turning into a human? I can't. There's only one Jesus who can come. How can I actually live in this humble way? If this is the true humility that God requires of us, how can we self-empty ourselves? Sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? Self-empty ourselves. How do we do that? How do we live like Christ? Well, it's in the emptying of our own fleshly desires kenosis in our own lives, so that we can allow God's will to be displayed. That's how we can live in Christ-like humility. It's in the emptying of our own fleshly desires, kenosis in our own lives, that we can allow God's will to be displayed in our lives. That's how we can live in Christ-like humility. So we all have agendas for our lives, don't we? We all have agendas for uh, each day, for each interaction with what we'd like to do, with the people that we meet, um, But humility is allowing for God's will to prevail instead of our own. God's um, agenda to be front and central in our life rather than our own. And I've got a couple of examples from my own life to kind of illustrate this. As I was thinking about this kind of humility, I'm not great at it all the time. Um, And I had an interaction with a dog breeder a year or so ago. And uh, when Frankie had her first litter, and it was clear to me and to a few other people that she actually didn't want me in on the dog breeding game. She was um, quite rude to me, in fact, uh, so much so that the another breeder had kind of commented to me, oh, just ignore what that lady's saying. Um, I think she was a bit embarrassed about how this lady had treated me. And my initial response internally was I wanted to send her um, a pointed email, put her in her place, <laughs> uh, and write her off as a person who I would never want to deal with again. She's one of those crazy breeder type people, because um, there are lots of them out there. Um, (laughs) and I really hope I don't become like one of them, so you can (laughs) tell me if I become one of those. Uh, So, yeah, but I felt God challenge me and say, actually, that's your agenda, Sarah, but my agenda is something different. Um, I want you to extend her grace, and um, by his grace, I have, and it's actually amazing because I've had to be in contact with this lady again uh, because she's head of one of the GSP clubs and very active in helping to test and eliminate a particular disease that GSPs get. And I've needed some actual advice from her. And there's been many times that I have thought, thank you, God, that you gave me your grace and you showed me not to send that email because I have needed to talk to this lady and thank you that I didn't burn my bridges, which is what I would have done if I had used my own agenda. <laughs> so... Um, I've discovered that she's a widow, she's had a tough time, she's got her own degree of pain in in her life, so that's probably why she was acting the way she was. And um, as I've been friendly and affirming, and I have actually gone out of my way to be affirming 
God's kind of prompted me. It's not from my own will. Um, as I've allowed God's agenda to fill my life rather than my own, I've actually been missional. So I'm spreading Christ's love, representing in him and his gracious agenda to those around me. Now, I may not be talking to you about Christ, but at least I'm acting in a way through God's grace um, where my agenda would certainly not have had those same outcomes. And another example was quite a few years ago when I was pursuing my career in, um, as a wildlife vet. I was hoping to be a zoo vet one day, which was the ultimate goal in my life, in my mind. And um, I'd actually been headhunted by Wellington Zoo to train on the job, which was pretty amazing because uh, since then, if you want to become a zoo vet, you have to do an extra three years of training. And um, I would have just been trained on the job, which would have been amazing. But at the very same time, God put this call on my heart, uh, a call to ministry. And I was like, oh, this is so inconvenient. Um, and I didn't want to hear it, to be honest. <laughs> and I, um, I still remember sitting in my room in Omaru with this fork in the road ahead of me. And I just had to get to the point where I was like, God, I know that you're calling me to be to do ministry. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be a wildlife. I could have, couldn't have been a wildlife yet and God wouldn't have blessed my life. And for some people, um, their vocation is where God's calling them. But for me, it was a very clear either or, not a both and. And um, so I had to sit on the, I remember sitting on the floor saying, okay, God, very reluctantly, if this is the path that you want me to go down, if this is the agenda that you have for my life, then I'll do it. Um, and I'll ask you to close the wildlife doors ahead of me. And they began to close. Very randomly, it seemed, but noticeably. And from being wide open, they were all closed. And it, it actually took a few years of grieving for me to let go of that dream um, and to fully accept. Because it's painful having yourself emptied. It's painful, this kenosis thing. It's painful having your agenda removed for God, um, God's agenda to be outworked. Now, before you, before you think of, um, and so obviously I didn't become a wildlife vet, um, but God's taken me on a wild ride since, and I wouldn't have ever gone to Regent if I hadn't, um, which is where I trained theologically, um, if I had been a wildlife vet. And I'm sure I've had all sorts of other things that have been amazing that God has blessed me um, because of his grace. Now, before you think that all my interactions are humble, <laughs> they aren't. And um, I do definitely allow um, my own agenda to get in the way. I just had an explosive uh, conversation with my mother a few weeks ago uh, where my own agenda came out in full force and not God's. Um, so I'm just letting you know that I'm not, I'm, I don't always get this right. And I had to do some repair work <laughs> the week afterwards. Um, but... Uh, it's not easy, but what, do, what does make it possible is that God did this for us. That Jesus came uh, amidst the pain of kenosis and he came, emptied himself, laid aside the privileges of him being king of heaven, took on flesh and was born as a baby so that the will of God could be displayed and his agenda could be outworked. And I love that it is this outrageously absurd love, when you think about it, that he demonstrates how much he wants us to be in relationship with him. Not just, I go to church on Sunday and God's my God. He actually wants to be so intimately in love with us and in relationship with us and us with him that he did this. 
He could have come born as a king in a wealthy royal family. He could have come to a town of great reputation, but instead he came to a poor persecuted minority group, refugees in a tiny town of no reputation. And that just blows my mind. And I've got this reading which I'm going to read, which helps to put the incarnation, this concept of Emmanuel, Jesus laying aside his power to put on human flesh. Um, It's actually from a Lent and Easter reading. But um, I think it's I think it's pretty powerful. So you can close your eyes if you like. In 1960, a pastor in East Germany wrote a play called The Sign of Jonah. The last scene dealt with the final judgment. All the peoples of the earth are assembled on the plain of Jehoshaphat, waiting God's verdict. They are not, however, waiting submissively. On the contrary, they are gathered in small groups, talking indigently. One group is a band of Jews, a sect that has known little but religious, social and political persecution throughout their history. Included in their number are victims of Nazi extermination camps. Huddled together, the group demands to know what right God has to pass judgment on them, especially a God who dwells eternally in the security of heaven. Another group consists of American blacks. They too question the authority of God who has never experienced the misfortunes of men, never known the squalor and depths of human degradation to which they were suffocated, they were subjected to in the suffocating holds of slave ships. A third group is composed of persons born illegitimately, the butt all their lives of jokes and sneers. Hundreds of such groups are scattered across the plain, the poor, the afflicted, the maltreated. Each group appoints a representative to stand before the throne of God and challenge his divine right to pass sentence on their immortal destinies. The representatives include a horribly twisted arthritic, a victim of Hiroshima, a blind mute. They meet in council and decide that this remote and distant God who has never experienced human agony is unqualified to sit in judgment unless he is willing to enter into the suffering, humiliated state of man, and to endure what they have undergone. Their conclusion reads, You must be born a Jew. The circumstances of your birth must be questioned. You must be misunderstood by everyone, insulted and mocked by your enemies, betrayed by your friends. You must be persecuted, beaten, and finally murdered in the most public and humiliating fashion. Such is the judgment passed on God by the assembly. The clamour rises to fever pitch as they await his response. Then a brilliant, dazzling light illuminates the entire plain. One by one, all of those who pass judgment on God fall silent. For emblazoned high in the heavens, for the whole world to see, is the signature of Jesus Christ, with this inscription above it, I have served my sentence. This kenosis, this self-emptying of Jesus, is what we celebrate at Christmas. This absurd demonstration of divinity come to live among us simply because he loves us with such extravagant and gracious love, undeserved and unrestrained. My prayer for us all is that we would look past the presents, the decorations, the food, even the family gathering together and see the heart of Christmas, which is God's extravagant, absurd love for us and the incredible gift of God with us inviting us to be in an intimate relationship with him. My prayer is that as we learn to live humble, humbly, living ourselves in a way where we empty ourselves of our fleshly desires and agendas and allow his desire and his agenda to reign in our lives, 
that we would be lifted up to the fullness of life with him. My prayer would be for us as a church that as we recognise our own fleshly desires for what we want in the way we run our, thing, our services, we would put those aside and we would allow the agenda of the Lord instead to be front and central in all we do together. Let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for Christmas and the season that we celebrate. But we thank you mostly for your love, your extravagant love for all of us. The fact that you love all of us in such an absurd way. Lord, this is just so amazing. And Lord, we see it throughout the whole story of Scripture, but we remember, especially at Christmas time, the kenosis, the self-emptying, where you came as a baby in a manger. And that was the start of the road to the cross. So Lord, we thank you, and we acknowledge you, and we want to continue to worship you. Help us to live as you have called us to live. Amen.